Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. We're back for another episode of Stories to Keep You Up at Night. I'm your host, Marco Palmieri, and with me, as always, is my better angel, Diana Foe. Oh, thank you. Does that mean you're my worst devil? Uh, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I could be. I've never been accused of being anyone's better angel, so sure, I'll I'll take that. So, I'm old enough that I was doing all my clubbing back in the 80s, and... That's the the life experience I bring to this episode in terms of its subject matter. Um, I can remember wearing oversized clothing, you know, baggy pants, baggy shirts, teasing my hair up. Was it all neon? It was. It was some of it. (laughs) Some of it was neon. I mean, you know, I, I had that period. Sure, why not? I mean. I don't know. I imagine I imagine your period of clubbing was probably uh, less flamboyant than mine was. Well, you know, I also went to a lot of goth clubs, so it's just a very different flavor of clubbing. Um, uh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. But, the, but what is fascinating when I first moved to New York, it's just known for just having a really great nightlife, but also known for having very unique spaces. Like I went to a lot of speakeasies, a lot of underground clubs, places where you just go down the alleyway, make a left, knock on the door three times, answer the riddle, they'll take you downstairs, or you go into the hot dog stand, and you order the hot dog at like three o'clock in the morning, has to be that time, and you answer a payphone. It's all these really convoluted ways. Oh, yeah just to get into this bar, um, and I loved it. Yeah, and th- those bars are still around, thank God, because I, I enjoy going to them. Uh, so, I mean, even though the clubs of my youth are, are long gone, the, the speakeasy vibe is definitely something I enjoy. Which kind of brings us to this episode's story. Uh, it's called Other People by Mimi Mondal, and it is set in a 
club or 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 speakeasy or or some kind of you know tavern with entertainment in India called the Johor, and I don't know what what what. What's the best way to set this up, do you think? I would say, you know, the best way to set this up is just be careful wherever you go at night because you don't know if you'll come back in the morning. Always good advice. So without further ado, we present Other People, written by Mimi Mandal, voiced by Sonila Nankani. One. New leaf green on the eyelids, blood red on the lips. Minutes before midnight, I stretch my body like a bowstring before the mirror. My eyes scan for any trace of fatigue left over from the turmoils of the past four days. The face that stares back at me is flawless and still like a mannequin's. Lithe body wrapped in black satin dress Strong legs resplendent like ice. Bells begin to toll overhead. Deep guttural strains from St. Paul's Cathedral at the city center, carried over the northwest wind, picked up by the tinny jingle of the seamen's church above us at the dockyard. As the collective knell ebbs into silence, I step out into the lone spotlight on the dais at the Jahor, and I am on. The prima donna. The crowd greets me with a raucous cheer. All these seamen, philanderers, smugglers, cutthroats, shady men with ready vice, men whom I have loved and enthralled for a decade. What's a mere death to men of their ilk? Nothing, I remind myself. Not a damn thing. As I open my song, my eyes stay upon the silhouette of Noru against the glass door of the bar, head and shoulders above everyone else. A glint of light in the darkness assures me that Johuri, the boss of the place and the show, is taking care of business as usual. The twins had performed their miraculous acrobatic act just before me. They must be upstairs now asleep in their beds, safe from harm. We are all here. It is a regular night at the Jahor, except that it's not. Tonight's tension ricochets back at me, even before I am through with the first song. It is different from tension inspired by the mealy mysterious or vaguely macabre, which on their own are the way of life at our bar. No, tonight the Jahor has fewer patrons than any night before. Everyone knows. Everyone has heard, though not a word has been uttered. People have seen policemen come calling to our house during the day. And it is Saturday night. They all know Saturdays are the guitarist's night on the dais. Their conviction irritates me. The guitarist had been part of the Jahor no longer than the past two months. For ten years before, it had been the prima donna on both Tuesday and Saturday nights, and no one had a word of complaint. In a matter of two months, have I become just another replaceable act? 
I wonder how many of the men restless for the guitarist tonight can even tell me his name. But that was precisely the charm of Shrub and Kosh. You did not have to know his name. With a bright smile, he could make you feel at home right at the place where you had lived all your life. How can I blame these men? When we at the Jahor ourselves had got used to the presence of Shrub on Ghosh in so little time. Ten years of performing two nights a week, and tonight I feel bleary, overwhelmed. I, the prima donna, whose cold, crusted heart had throbbed out its last beat a long time ago. I, the prima donna, who has never been less than perfect. I've wondered if his charm was all that set Shrub on Ghosh apart from mere men, though it would have sufficed. The Jahor is not a house of questions and answers. No one will ask you where you were before or why you came. If you have found your way here, you have earned your belonging. And Shrub on Ghosh certainly had. One night, two months ago, a thin, dusty-haired young man arrived looking for a job, armed with a guitar case and a ravishing smile. I bring the set to an end precisely at the break of dawn. I try to slip backstage, but I'm interrupted by a cargo ship captain from Poland, an old patron. I pause to greet the captain, and he inquires, Say... What's happened to your guitarist, chap? Wasn't he supposed to be on tonight? You were splendid as usual, but I'm just... He babbles on irrelevantly. A tiny dart of jealousy does not fail to pierce me. The guitarist has returned to the city on leave. He is not a regular here, you see. I curtly reply. The drunkard does not let go. Leaning in what he thinks is a conspiratorial manner, he asks, And what of the word on the street, my dear? Police raids, illegal trade in body organs. Could this be true? Why don't you tell us what you think, Mr. Korzeniowski? This time, it is Noru who answers, looming over the captain and me. I did not know when he had crept upon us. The bastard seems to walk without noise. He continues in a voice that is half rumble, half growl. You've been coming to the jaw hole for years. Do we look like sellers of organs to you? The captain cowers, mumbles. No, no, of course not. What ludicrous things these people make up. And makes off without further ado. I give Noru a grin and a wink. With a grunt, he says, go to your room, prima donna. What a massive sourpuss, I think to myself, as I gather my adornments and retire. Two, the death of the guitarist has taken a toll on all of us. The Jahor, Jewel and Poison, is not a place anyone can unassumingly chance upon. It puts up no signboard opens no neon-lit door on any fashionable street in the city. If your idea of a good time 
is to spend wads of cash on glaring lights and blaring music, it is likely that you have never heard of the Jahor. The Jahor is no place for the young or mirthful at heart. This is not a neighborhood you should visit in your flashy car. It is a neighborhood you should avoid entirely if you did not know precisely where you were going. Many a naive romantic has fertilized the mud banks of the river for knocking the door of the wrong shanty on the street behind the docks at night, looking for a shortcut into the heart of the jewel and the poison. A patron of the Jahor knows exactly which door to knock, what words to speak to the bent old woman known universally as Burima, who waves him in, how to follow her inside her shanty, where the only furniture is a wooden cupboard, its ancient glass panels grown opaque with dust. Burima opens the cupboard, and you are received on the other side by a man in a shabby suit that barely manages to stretch over his frame. His immense tawny hair is tied back with a ribbon. This is our Noru. Noirit Ray, as his name is put down on Johuri's payroll. You greet him. He acknowledges you with a grunt. His eyes measure you up and down. No questions are asked. No search conducted. But you are marked. Then Noru turns, and you follow him down a dark, spiraling stairwell till you have lost all sense of depth or direction. The stairs open into a landing and a short corridor. The floor now is thickly carpeted, the walls padded with red velvet. Noru leads you to the end of the corridor, holds the door open, and you finally step into the dimly lit bar that's the Jahor. On the rare night when a newcomer arrives, he is usually quiet, holding his breath and sobriety till he returns to the world above. Many such men have I seen in my time. Some have returned to become regulars. Others disappeared after that first taste of the jewel and the poison. No one before had shown the sheer nerve of following me backstage after the show going down on one knee in the inner yard of the house and whipping out a long stem of electric blue moon sliver. So, should I call you Prima or Donna? He asked with a smile that sparkled in the faint eerie glow of one of the rarest flowers on the planet. Doubtlessly, he was aware of the worth of that smile. I had stared at the stranger in disbelief. Despite the fine fluff on his cheeks, he barely looked old enough to drink. His eyes were steady, unclouded by any intoxication. Prima donna will suffice. I had accepted the flower loftily, refusing to offer any hope for acquaintance. The prima donna's love is not for tramps. Undeterred, the young man had turned to Johuri and pleasantly inquired if there was an opening for a guitarist. We were all surprised at the question. There is nothing lucrative about working at the Jahor for anyone who can work anywhere else at all. 
and the young man looked entirely normal. Nothing out of the way. Nothing like us. Why? Johuri had asked. Why not? Never breaking eye contact for a moment, never dropping that smile. An honest man? A fool surely could never have found his way to our house. What exactly then? Let us see how you play that thing. Shrubban Ghosh had uncased the instrument and sung us a song. His voice was a clear, melodious tenor, his playing without error, a treat to the ear and the eye. When he finished, Johuri said, Pay is one thousand, take it or leave it. Free food and lodging, I presume? Of course he knew. Where else could people like us go? The diamond in Johuri's right eye had gleamed in the pale sunlight of morning that made its way through the windows near the high ceiling above. The first week you sleep on the floor in the bar. Let's see what our patrons make of you. If you fit, you can go upstairs. Share the room with our Noru here. Noru received this information with a barely concealed snarl, the kind that could make any normal man jump out of his skin. Shrubben had just given our resident man-tiger a dazzling grin. Sounds magnificent. What more can a man ask for? Three. No one expected him to last long. With all the looks and tact of a runaway schoolboy, the new guitarist was the antithesis of the house itself, and the jawhor does not take kindly to anomalies. But Shrub and Ghosh went to every corner of our house, spoke to everyone, asked the most forbidden questions with childlike candor, and was completely undaunted when he was met with stony-eyed silence. His warmth vibrated like a physical thing within its dank interiors, irresistible, drawing us clammy creatures into his circle. We watched him with a kind of terrified fascination, each of us, no doubt, privately speculating the time before he would encounter some dreadful accident. Looking back, it occurs to me that that mix of optimism and vulnerability had always been part of Shrub and Ghosh's charm. He began his stays scrubbing dishes for Burima, who also does our chores during the day. Soon enough, the second biggest slice of fish at lunchtime was inadvertently landing on the guitarist's plate. A week later, the night he first performed, our patrons gave Shrub and Ghosh a standing ovation, making his place permanent on Johuri's payroll. The very next afternoon, he was sitting with Johuri in his room, obediently rolling cigarettes as the man regaled him with stories. The two of them laughed away like old friends. Every evening, I came out of my room to find a freshly bloomed rose, carnation, or an occasional glowing moon sliver at my doorstep. The day I was truly stumped, was when I saw Shrubben stepping out of the room of the twins. In all my years at the Jahor, 
I have never seen the inside of the twins' room. The twins have been at the Jahor longer than I have, longer than Noru or even Burima upstairs. The twins keep to themselves. I doubt anyone except Johuri knows anything about them. But here was a man, not yet a month old in the house, chatting them up as if they were a pair of schoolchildren. The Jahor seemed to have absorbed the anomaly of shrub and gauche into its heart, molding itself around his curious essence. The only person impervious to this spectacle was dour old Noirit Ray. When the guitarist was finally transferred to his room, Noru took to staying outside when he was in. The room allotment had been no injustice. Accommodation is scarce in this abandoned Zamindar mansion by the river, now in ruins and half underwater, which Johuri had refurbished as our quarters. River water and silt have taken the rooms on the ground floor. We can lie in our beds upstairs and listen to the waves splash against the foundations of the house or the thump of the occasional fish or floating debris. Of the four rooms on the first floor, one belongs to Johuri and one to me. Both the other rooms were meant to sleep two occupants each, and one of them is given to the twins. Burima sleeps in a shanty by the dockside street. Noru had only happened to lord it over the fourth room because all these years there has been no seventh person to share it. Noru, nevertheless, was upset. Every advance of friendship from the guitarist fell dead on him. Unlike the rest of us, Shrubben liked to sleep at night. Noru spent those nights skulking around the empty inner yard or the bar, scrubbing the floor, shining tables, eventually polishing bottles in the cabinet when there was nothing else to do. By the end of a month, he was going out on the nights when the jawhor was not open. He returned at first daylight and waited for the guitarist to wake up and vacate the room before he could enter, lock the door, and go to sleep. And then, Shrubben Gosh died. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Four. The police raid on Wednesday morning had unsettled us all. The house of Jahor is not for the eyes of the day. Gods were barred from entering our house before sundown but the police had intercepted our entrance, roused Burima from her sleep, forced their way into the jewel and the poison with no interference at all. As we were hauled out of our rooms for questioning, I noticed with bleary-eyed horror how everything around me was derelict and falling apart. There were drink stains on the tables and cracks on the marble floor. 
The velvet of the walls was moth-eaten at places and littered with rat droppings. The police had pried open the windows, let in the streaming sunlight, and violated the sanctity of our house. They said they had discovered the corpse of Shrabon Ghosh at dawn, washed up by the river ten miles south of our house. His body was mutilated, and several organs were missing. The police suspected that the Jaho ran a racket of illegal trade in organs. I had never heard of anything more preposterous. The police inspector was fidgety and irritable. Not unusual behavior, I observed with satisfaction, for a man whose first encounter in the morning involved the face of Johuri. It is a calm face, stone-like, the left eye boring into your soul as the right eye stares, a stark, irisless white, until light catches it at an angle. You have to be a man of strong constitution to hold on to your seat, as that iridescent right eye of Johuri glitters at you in the dark recesses of the Jahor. That eye has ensured nightmares for many a misbehaving scoundrel. This morning, however, Johuri was the epitome of solicitousness. Name? Radhamadhub Johuri, sir, he seamlessly provided. Humble servant is the owner of this place. Radha Madhab, I noted. Never heard that one before. Age? Fifty-seven, sir. This, too, was news. Where are you originally from, Johri Babu? Born in Surat, sir. But my parents were members of a traveling circus. Majestic Oriental Circus, sir. Though now, no more. Family home in the Jalpaiguri district, sir. Never married. No issue. I see, Johuri Babu. And why, may I ask, is your eye like that? The inspector seemed to have been itching to ask the question. It's a diamond, sir. Lost my eye when I was ten, sir. Poked out with a stick by another boy at the circus. He added with a servile whine, it's the only indulgence I have, sir. You cannot arrest a man for wearing a diamond. Indeed, you couldn't. Overcome, the inspector turned his attention to the twins. Contrary to the first impression, you can actually tell the twins apart from one another. Sasha is the one that is white-skinned, blonde, and blue-eyed on the left half of the body and ebony-hued, green-eyed, and with half a head of brown girls on the right. Elia is the mirror opposite. Their bodies are slender, androgynous, their movements silent and graceful, like all good acrobats should be. Two pairs of identically mismatched eyes stared up at the inspector as he demanded, And what are these? With a leap entirely uncouth of his gait, Johri landed up on the policeman's side. Oh, they are children, sir. Do not frighten them, I beseech you. They've never stepped outside this house. 
never known anything except the circus tricks I've taught them myself. Strangers scare the lives out of them, sir. They're not used to the ways of the outside world. How old are they? Sixteen, sir, but... And do they have names? Sasha and Elia Mendel, sir. Johuri eagerly provided for the inspector's notebook. Are you aware, Johuri Babu, that one needs a license to employ foreigners in this country? But they are not truly foreigners, sir, Johuri whined. Their father came from overseas, but he spent his life at our circus. He had belonged more to this land than any other man. Oh, old man Mendel was a brother to me, sir. Before he died, I promised him that I would look after his little orphans, and I've been carrying out my words since that day. Would you care to explain their appearance, Johuri Babu? The inspector was beginning to look vaguely embarrassed. Oh, they suffer from a rare kind of melanoma, sir, my poor children. I've tried so many treatments, but none of it has worked. Would it please you to see the prescription, sir? No. He continued in the most theatrical tone. Therefore, I have trained them and put them up on the stage. For what other livelihood was left for these children of mine? We entertainers are miserable souls who must peddle their oddities for rice on our plate. It is a life of ignominy, sir. What can I tell you? The downpour had its effect, for the inspector then escaped to me. A look of triumph appeared as he set his eyes upon my face. You, madam, have a scar under your eye. I smirked. And I suppose my brain has been leached out through it and sold off? The inspector nearly blushed. Will you tell me how you came to have such a scar, Miss... Protama Shundori Debi. Johri's smile over the shoulder of the inspector assured me of the impeccability of the improvisation. Of course, I'll tell you. If you think that will help in your investigations. Childhood, stepmother, tried to carve my eyes out while I was asleep. Reason I ran away and became a cabaret singer, didn't I? How long ago did this happen? If you're asking me to reveal my age, I am sorry, but you won't have it. Does joining the police force acquit men from their obligation to decency? The inspector made an expression that I've only seen before on the faces of puppies hit with a broomstick on a winter morning. He swiftly moved on to Noru, who was waiting as a figure of stolid rage. I am the usher and guard. Your age? Not a clue. Can't read. Never had em papers. And where is your home, Noirit Babu? Metinipur. Which part exactly? Village called Shukurhati. In the Shundorbans. I was sure that story contained as much truth as the rest of ours. Noru Ray had never come across to me as a village bumpkin. I wondered what else he would say. The police inspector wanted to know 
where all of us had been the night before, when each of us last saw Shrub and Ghosh, details of everything we did. We were all in the house, Johri spoke. The Johor was open. We work on Tuesdays and Saturdays. And Tuesdays are Protama Shundari's turn to perform. On both days, the twins do a set of acrobatics before the main act. At the stroke of midnight, they return to their rooms and go to sleep. I make sure of it personally. On both days, while the bar is open, I spend the entire night there. I take orders, serve the drinks, collect money, keep watch over the performances. Noru spends the early hours patrolling between the stairwell, the corridor, and the bar, showing in the guests. Afterwards, he comes in and stands guard at the door, makes sure everyone behaves responsibly. Last night, all these things had gone according to order. You may ask any of our patrons. Since you have learnt how to make your way into the Jahor, no doubt you know where to find some of them. Ignoring the bait, the police inspector demanded, Tell me all about what Shrub and Ghosh did last night. Johri sighed, grimaced. Shrubben performed on Saturdays. On other nights, he went to bed straight after dinner. Last night, too, all of us ate together. It was keema curry with rice, if that interests you. Our Burima makes an unparalleled keema curry. After we had eaten, Shrubben went up to his room. The twins and Protama Shundari went upstairs, too, but to their own rooms to prepare for their performances. I made my way to the bar to make sure everything was in place, and Noru went up the stairwell to receive any early guest. Burima had left earlier. She eats by herself in her shanty. That was the last any of us saw of Shrubben. At daybreak, when we returned after closing up the bar, Shrubben had not yet come downstairs. But that was nothing unusual. He was a morning person, unlike the rest of us. But even for a morning person, barely after sunrise in winter is too early to be up and about. His doors were shut, as were the twins, so none of us suspected anything. We went to sleep until your men came making a ruckus and woke us up at this ungodly hour. We found two beds in the room where the deceased lived the inspector said. Who else slept in that room? Why, that would be our Noru. Johuri's voice sounded like a wail. All eyes turned to our gigantic, petulant bouncer. The police asked him, And did you find Shrub on Ghosh in his bed when you returned to the room, Noirut Babu? No. Noru shrugged. But I didn't give it much thought. Maybe he was out performing his ablutions. Maybe he had gone for a walk. Shrubbon Ghosh was a grown man, and people don't float face down in the river every day. It had been a long night. I was thankful for the peace and quiet. I changed, got into my bed, and fell asleep immediately. Shrubbon Ghosh was no friend of yours, I presume. He was a giggling twerp. Five. 
I find myself wondering what itch Noru had got up there about shrub and gauche. Was it the fact that before the guitarist showed up, he was the only able-bodied male in the house, to whom the young woman, the old woman, the crippled master and the children would presumably turn at any danger? Though Noru has worked at the Jahor for more than three years, we know as little about him as we did about the now deceased boy wonder. Not that old Noru had ever been what you'd call suave, but with each day Shrubbin spent at the Jahor, he had grown more and more churlish. In particular, I resented the proprietorial tone he had come to assume regarding my affinity for the guitarist. The matter came to a head a month after Shrubbin's arrival. It was late on a non-working night. Johuri was out on business in the city. The twins were up in their room, doing whatever mysterious thing they do in their spare time. The guitarist was sprawled on my bed, happily slumbering after a couple of hours of sport. I had dressed and gone downstairs to the bar to pour myself a stiff whiskey. I found Noru in one corner of the bar, wiping the glasses which Burima had already been through once. He knew me instantly by the light of the moon sliver that I wore loosely in my hair. Shrubbon had bought it in the markets of Bao Bazaar that very afternoon. Prima Donna, he beckoned in a hoarse whisper. I went up to him. You are soft on the guitarist, Prima Donna. He made it sound like an accusation. And you are soft in the head, Norure. I laughed. Stop lurking in the bar like a ghost and go back to your room. You've been relieved of his company for tonight. Mock me as much as you wish, but I find it my duty to warn you, Noru said. That man is an imposter. And which one of us here is not? You, I purred. Shrubbon has seen with his own eyes how Burima prepares food for you. She spices and roasts the meat for the rest of us, but your portion she keeps aside, raw and bloody as it came from the market. Merely before serving, she pours a ladle of gravy over it so that no one can tell. What do you say to that, my dear man-tiger? Tell that little traitorous shit that the next time he goes telling tales about me, I will make him regret the day he was born. Noru replied with a snarl, bearing long carnivorous teeth. Then lowering his voice, he added, I did not mean imposter in quite that sense, prima donna. Oh, I know. You meant he is a purveyor of hearts. Appalled by my teasing, Noru prowled out of the jawhor not to be seen again until the next morning. He did not raise the subject again, merely turned grumpier towards everyone in the house. Six, with the first radiant flower, the guitarist had offered the prima donna his heart. 
In the beginning, she had scoffed, for he was nothing but a child-faced competitor for her patron's attention, a pauper in the world above, not even a particularly well-behaved one at that. It took her two months to tell him that he could have her old heart in return. The prima donna had promised to keep him and care for him always. The prima donna failed to stay true to her promise. And for this, she is sad. Seven. The police inspector comes to the Jahor on the next open night. It is Tuesday again, a week from the guitarist's passing. The inspector is in plain clothes, but we know him as soon as he enters. He has put pomade in his hair and combed it back from his scalp. He looks like quite the dandy. Immediate alarm spreads through the crowd inside our darkly lit den of disrepute. It is not the kind of disturbance that is tempered away with drink, though Johri is suddenly more generous with the measures. A few of our patrons try to sidle towards the door. Noru squares his shoulders and blocks it. The inspector has eyes only for me. Johri plies him with drink, but he accepts only a gin and tonic. After the show, Johuri instructs me to sit at his table as Noru and he hurry to see off our guests. I am no stranger to entertaining men of power. You look very, very glamorous in that dress, Protama Shundori Debi, the inspector blurts out when we are alone. Here at the core of the jewel and the poison, he fails to meet my eye. Glamorous is part of my job description, Inspector. I try hard not to sound bitter. Call me Horan. Ah, uh, Horan thus, he says. Please. Very well then, Horan. I smile. The thing is, Prothama Shundari, I hope, I hope you understand that inquisitive is similarly part of my job description. I realize I've caused you offense with my questions the other day. I thought it would be only fair of me to offer you an apology, my personal apology. He falters and instead fumbles at the breast pocket of his shirt. Out comes a little gold-woven purse a dainty feminine thing that looks hilarious in the hands of the police inspector. He proffers it to me. I hope you will accept this and forgive me, Protamashundari. The purse reveals a gold ring encrusted with a large blue sapphire, circled with tiny pearls, all of it held together by the finest filigree work I have seen. It glitters even in the darkness of the Jahor. Jewelry of such grandeur is rarely wrought in these stricken days. I have no doubt this ring is someone's heirloom. Please put it on. I slip the ring onto my finger, smiling to myself, wondering where the world would be without the foibles of foolish men. Police Inspector Horendas had broken into my home and abused my friends. 
tonight he has made my patrons scamper. No one knows if the next time we will open the jaw whore to empty tables. And here sits the inspector, blushing and tempting me with jewels, hoping to receive my favors. Out loud, I say in my creamiest voice, aren't you an incredible man, Horin thus? Then add, there is yet some time before the light of the day gets too harsh for my complexion. The mist from the river rises at this hour, turning everything soft and dreamlike. Would you like me to take you to a special place, Horan? I watch the puppy-like expression creep back on the face of the man. Only this time, it is of a puppy who has had a buffet laid out before him. Eight. The heart is an inconvenient organ for exchange. I had warned Shrub and Gosh. Its romanticism overreaches its function, which is merely to pump blood through the body. He had insisted. I want to live like you, he said. I want to be young and forever in love. So we prepared behind the closed doors of my room, counting the days until full moon. Shrubbon purchased the knife on one of his trips to the city, pure iron, no alloy, and brought it back discreetly inside his guitar case. He acquired thread for sewing. I listed the materials for the unguent as I recalled their scents. Powdered seed of the datura plant, scales of the cheetol fish, which Shrubbon collected in the guise of helping Burima with her cooking. Gum Arabic for adhesion, drawn fresh from the trunk of a shirish tree. Jaggery for sweetening, turmeric for preservation, a pinch of vermilion for faith. I mixed them with my fingers in an earthen bowl, as I had done in my youth under the watchful eye of my stepmother. When the fragrance from the ball whisked me off across the years, I knew that we were ready. The full moon was on a Tuesday. After dinner, we waited for Johuri and Noru to leave for the bar. We waited for the twins' act to begin. There were rooms once, beneath ours, on the ground floor of the house. Now there were only barred doors along the wall of the inner yard, which, if unlocked, would take you out to the river. I fetched the bunch of keys that Johuri had allowed me to keep, as the lady of the house. I unlocked the pair of doors that were right underneath my own. We hitched up our clothes and stepped into the mud and mist. The river at high tide swallowed us up to our knees. This had been the bedchamber of the Zamindar, where he made love to his mistresses. The three walls and a ceiling that remained brought back no memory of the redolence of those days. Stripped of plaster by river water and sun, the black bricks stuck out like bones. But there was no more sanctified spot in the entire house for the secret consummation of our love. Shrubbon pulled off his shirt. He swallowed a measure of laudanum, then bared his chest to me. I worked with swift, certain moves, 
the way a seasoned cook guts a fish, knowing exactly where to find the organ she needs to extract, at which part to make the cut. Then, as he dropped to his knees and collapsed against me, I made tiny incisions in his heart and sank it in the bowl of unguent. I waited until the mixture hardened, forming a cold, opalescent crust over his heart, as I have come to have on mine. Quickly, quicker than I'd been to remove it, I replaced the frozen heart within Shrubbin's chest cavity, replugging the arteries and the veins with practiced fingers. I stitched back the muscle and the skin, washed off the wound and the rest of his body with handfuls of muddy river water. Shrubbin did not awake. A wild fear came over me, and I began to shake him, slap him, softly moaning his name. But all he did was slump lifelessly against my body. I slashed at his face with the knife, releasing a thin streak of blood. He did not shock from the blade. With trembling fingers, I undid the stitches on Shrubbin's chest. A moment's indiscretion, and his heart dropped out of the body, sinking in the dark waters. I let go of his body and dived after it. When I fished out the heart, it was washed clean of its crust. It regurgitated muddy, blood-stained water with a grotesque squeak, not unlike a cheap rubber toy. How could my careful endeavor have failed? I had no idea. All the ingredients were there, their measurements precise, the fragrance of the mix exactly as I remembered. The blade of iron, the full moon night. Then why did Shrubbin Ghosh not rise as I had done at my time? I wanted to run to my stepmother, but she had been dead for more than a decade, killed by a stray bolt of lightning on the rooftop of our ancient house. Was there some other ritual? Something vital between putting me to the knife and lifting the veil over my senses, of which I had never had any knowledge? The minutes ticked away. The high tide of the evening was beginning to ebb under my feet. I could not leave Shrubbin in that place to fester and become feed to vultures and fish while I slept in my bedroom above. Gasping, sobbing with my tearless eyes, I dragged him into the receding waters, waded chest deep into the river under the waning moonlight until the currents had enough force to bear him away. I locked the forbidden doors, returned to my room, and changed out of the clothes soaked in water, mud, and blood. Then, with a skill known to every girl since puberty, I washed the clothes clean of their stains, and hung them out to dry. That night at the Jahor, all my songs were of grief. Nine. It is to this sanctuary of thwarted love that I lead police inspector Horan thus this morning, before sunrise, taking him by the hand, giggling coyly. He comes along without resistance, Wait so obediently as I go into my room, return with my keys, unlock the doors. When I step into the mud and beckon him, he makes to take off his shoes. Oh no, 
keep them on, I tell him. The riverbed is filled with sharp little bits. I can't bear to have his filthy policeman gumboots left in our house. Horan thus steps out into the river. The gumboots sink with a squelch under his weight. Have you ever wished to be immortal, Horan? I ask happily, gazing at the river, a cool misty blue at this early hour. To live until every part of your body wears out, rather than merely the circulatory system and the brain? I could show you how. My God, is such a thing even possible? The policeman responds in spellbound fascination. You've been looking at me, Inspector. I turn my whole body to face him. I grin, take the iron knife out from under my bodice. No, you dare not touch me, screams Horin thus, before I can bring down the blade. In one swift movement, he extracts his service pistol and points it at me. That dreamy, unfocused look has exited his eyes completely. His hands shake from the tightness of his grip, but at such a close range, any shot will pierce my body. I have no idea what a bullet does to a body with no blood or beat in it, but I realize I am not anxious to find out. You evil bitch, cries the policeman. I knew it the moment I set eyes upon you. And when you evaded my questions, there was no doubt. This is how you murdered that poor boy, poor Shrub and Gush, the idiot who believed that you loved him. You blinded him with romance, fed him this claptrap about immortality, and drew him into this hideout, and then, then you butchered him and cut out his organs. I did not blind Shrubbin with romance. I did not butcher him. I protest at the unfair accusations. What would you know? What I know, surely, is that if you do not drop that knife and come quietly, I am going to shoot you full of holes. I do not move. Drop the knife, he barks. Behind me, the sky is getting brighter. Soon there will be bathers at the opposite bank of the river. If they look up, they will see us, engaged here in combat. I loosen my hold on the knife. It drops into the water with a plonk. Now come to the police station. Start walking ahead where I can see you. I cannot go to the police station. I cannot let the policemen examine me on this ridiculous charge of body organ trade. It would be the end for me. The end for all of us and the Jahor. Go! My feet are planted into the shifting mud. I stare hard at Horan thus as he raises the pistol again, pointing between my eyes. On the count of three, I will shoot. Nobody will be able to touch me. It will get down as shooting in self-defense. Now get moving. One, two. My mind befuddled with fear, only registers a streak of orange, black, and white as it shoots out of the doors, shoots out from inside our house, and springs upon the police inspector. He crumples into the shallow water, and before he can turn or utter a scream, 
A huge paw smashes into his face, and there is blood, blood, blood. Muddy, spreading, dissolving. As Horan thus stops struggling underwater, Noirith Ray raises a dripping head and emits a low, satisfied growl. Noru, I whimper, too shaken to register the relief. Noru, he knew about Shrub and Gosh. How could he know? I have heard that people turn fools for love, prima donna. But now I have seen it all, grumbles Noru. Your beloved Shrub and Gosh was a police implant all the time. Right away, I had sensed something shifty about that man, but I had nothing to put on him. Not until I started sniffing out his trails from the trips he made to the city, apparently to fulfill any of your thousand whims. Guess what? Sure, he went to the jeweler, the flower market, or anywhere you bid him to go. But then the trail always ended up at the police station at Watgunge. After that, I decided I would end him. But I wanted to do it somewhere safe, secret, and far from this house. And the bastard never went out at night. But then you stepped in and sorted him out yourself. I imagined you had figured out his game as well. But that was too much to hope for, wasn't it? I collapsed softly against the rotting wall. All I managed to say is, Noru, what will we do? This horrid man must have put more policemen on the watch. If he doesn't return, they will raid our house and arrest us all. If the police come, we will say that he left at the end of the show, like any other patron. The jaw whore stays open beyond working hours for no man. Noru replies firmly. Then his voice changes, taking on that patronizing tone that I had so come to detest. You are tired, prima donna. Go back upstairs, wash up, and get some sleep. But when his body floats out in the river, I begin. But Noru silences me with an impatient twitch. I rouse myself and climb upon the threshold of the house. Out of the water, I am at once cold and shivering. Noru stays in the water. Lock the doors behind you, he tells me. And if you'd be so kind, step upstairs and inform Burima that I won't be back in time for lunch. Noru does not return until three days later, when he saunters in wearing new clothes, bringing in a bouquet of roses for Burima. He appears oddly pleased with himself. Johuri tells me afterwards that the police had come looking later on that fateful day. They had consumed tea and arrowroot biscuit listened to Johuri's balderdash, and gone back empty-handed, while I slept in my bedroom upstairs, dreaming of nothing. 
I love Mimi's writing. I always have. I bought a story from her for Tor.com, which we're going to be featuring later in the show. Not not this episode, but in a future episode, we'll be showcasing his footsteps in, in darkness and light. Another great story. But this one, you know, M- Mimi paints a picture of a space that seems to breathe with life of its own. And I'm 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 really impressed with the way she talks about the Johor as as this entity unto itself that pulls people in and you know she she says if you have found your way here you have earned your belonging and i just thought that was just such a beautiful turn of phrase so maybe as a way of sucking me right into her fiction and this story is no exception and when she you know she turns the creep factor up all through it until you get to the big reveal. And uh, I don't know. For me, for me, it was just an amazing experience. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you mentioned belonging as an underlying theme to the story. It's, it's a murder mystery. It's this, you know, illustrious and creepy cabaret, speakeasy setting. But it's also about a bunch of misfits and outcasts that somehow bond together in this very unusual venue. And I think fantasy just has, you know, both fantasy and Mm sci-fi have a lot of stories where you have found families and people who just get together because they can't fit in anywhere else. That is so true. And it's another thing that I think Mimi does really well is, is, you know, she she pulls uh, misfit characters together. I see it again and again in her fiction. I wish she was more prolific. Because, you know, I would I would keep reading her to my dying day. <laughs> I would love to read more from Mimi as well. The writing is very gorgeous. And for me personally, I just really enjoy having that dreamlike, surreal unfolding of everything and how she introduces each of the characters who are performers in this club. And you don't exactly know what their powers are at first. You mm-hmm. don't even know that they could be unusual. Right. And how she just drops little hints and clues to pull you in. I yeah. especially, you know, love love how the story ends. <laughs> Agree a hundred percent. You know, I mean, and right down to to uh, the description of the prima donna's grotesque ritual. I mean, that really pushed it over the top for me. It's uh, it's an awesome whodunit, and I uh, loved every moment of it. And that's a wrap for this episode. So I'll see you next time, Diana. Yeah, I hope to be here, but I don't know. I might be visiting this place in the East Village that I heard that if you go down into the sewer, there's certain, you know, there's a certain connoisseur that I would I would meet there and also great jazz, apparently. Oh, well. So who knows? I might not return, but if I do, and if you are wondering whether you'll see me again, I suggest at least drop a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast and join us next time where we encounter another musician that has a very unusual high-flying adventure. Stay safe and pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 3, features Other People by Mimi Mondal. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Osadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw. And executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Diana M. Foe. Performed by Sunila Nankani. Audio produced by Amanda Rose Smith and Tidef Studios. Additional editing by Angela Yi. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.